And I'm looking at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, if you join me there in your Bible. I'm going to finish our walk through these two little books. I have enjoyed our walk through 1 and 2 Thessalonians. I hope you have. Um, I am so glad the Holy Spirit, in his eternal foresight, let's, uh, if you did not get an outline, raise your hand, one will come to you. I'm so glad that the Holy Spirit, in his eternal foresight, directed the Apostle Paul to write these two little books that speak so often of the coming of the Lord. They speak more of the return of Christ than any other epistles, any other doctrine of the church. So if we're going to know how we should believe and how we should act, and that's really what's important, how we should act in light of the second coming of Christ, we should study First and Second Thessalonians. I told you last week, if you'd look back at chapter 2, verse 15, I believe this is the key verse. This is the thrust of the Apostle Paul as he writes the book of Second Thessalonians. He says, therefore, based upon everything he's been teaching, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or by our epistle. In light of the second coming of Christ, in light of the troubles that they were going through there in Thessalonica, in light of the fact that different people were wavering and doing different things, in light of these things, in light of their own fears and their own misconceptions, Therefore, stand fast and hold on to the tradition. We learned a couple of weeks ago at the end of chapter 2, that, or, or, or it's been more like a month ago, in the, in the middle part of chapter 2, that there's coming a time when God will severely judge this planet. The Antichrist will rule. And as he comes to the end of chapter 2, he talks, he, he, he readjusts, he does this day again, this conjunction, but he's going to shift the topic slightly. And, and, and I rejoiced in the last sermon we were here, as we were in the last few verses of chapter 2, where Paul talked about the important issues of our salvation. He talked about our justification, he talked about our sanctification, he talked about our glorification, and, and in the light of everything else. And I, and I think this is an important reset button, even as Paul pushed it here it's important for us to emphasize it here at Trinity Baptist Church. Any ministry that gets off on something other than the gospel as their primary focus, and I believe when we talk about the gospel, that yes, we're talking about justification, and yes, we're talking about sanctification, how we live in this present day of trouble, and our glorification, what God is going to do in the future. All those things are bound up in our salvation, or our salvation is, is exemplified, pictured by all three of those things. All three are facets of. And as we talk about that, as we focus on that, um, that should be the the focus of our ministry. Don't get swooped up by a ministry that is all about a certain doctrine. Whatever it is, it may be an important doctrine. It may be the doctrine of the Bible. It may be the doctrine of the second coming of the church, uh, of Jesus Christ rather for the church. Whatever it is, (laughs) no doctrine is as important in our central reform. A refocus or a reset ought to be this, the gospel, that he talks about here at the end of chapter 2. He begins chapter 3 in our study today by saying that he wants them to pray for him. This reminds me a lot of Romans 15 as Paul is telling the Roman church to pray for his ministry 
In verse 1, Paul says that he should, he asked that they would pray that the gospel would spread rapidly and be honored. That the gospel would have free course, that nothing would get in its way, that nothing would dam it up, that nothing would slow it down, but that the gospel would spread quickly and have free course. This, this is a good thing for us to pray. Have you prayed for the gospel this week? Have you prayed for Trinity Baptist Church this week? Have you prayed for the preaching here? Have you prayed for the Iwana workers as we sit down with those kids and talk about the doctrine of the church and the doctrine of the word of God? Have you prayed for our missionaries as they would preach? Sometimes when I go to prayer, I, I, I try to, especially when I, about Saturday night, to really think about and pray for our missionaries. Because I know because of the time zones, our missionary in Korea is, is Saturday night. When I go to bed, he's probably walking into the pulpit. And, and, and as I um, sleep during the night, my brother-in-law in Bergen is preaching. My brother-in-law in Scotland, John Bergen, he's not in Bergen, he is Bergen. He's preaching the, the Trosters in Mozambique. I pray that they'll be safe as they, they go to church and as they minister there in the capital of Mozambique, Africa. And, and so throughout the world, it, our missionaries are, are doing, are, are we praying for them? That the gospel would have free course, that there, there wouldn't be crime in the way, that there wouldn't be legal um, problems in the way, that there wouldn't be um, sin in their lives, that the gospel would have free course in their ministries. Second, in, chapter, in verse 2 of chapter 3, Paul asks, that they would pray that he might be delivered from those wicked and unreasonable men. There are some people who are just contrary to the gospel in a culture, sometimes in government, sometimes they're even in the church. There are people who want to see the gospel stopped. Maybe it's for their own glorification. Maybe it's for it's their own um, guilt. That because of their sin, they want to see the gospel stopped. And so Paul asked for prayer that he, as a minister, might be delivered from those wicked and unreasonable men. And then in verses 3 to 5, Paul expresses his confidence. Let me, let me read this. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of God may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. Verse 2, that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men for not all have faith. Verse 3, but the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. Note that word command. It's going to be the first of four times that he's going to use it in this immediate context. That he will do the things we command you, so there was behavior that was to accompany their salvation. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. Paul expresses his confidence of God's working in their lives, in the faith of the Thessalonians. He says, I know this is going to happen. He who began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Till Jesus comes back, he's going to keep working in your heart. Now as we go to verses 6 through 15, I think Paul, finally he's worked his way through the, the immediate problems. He's worked his way through the doctrine. He's, he's done the reset with the focus in, in verses two and 15 and, and following of chapter 2. And now Paul gets down to the nitty-gritty application of why he wrote this letter. But we command you, brethren. I'm reading in verse 6. 
In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly. And not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day, that we may not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. For if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So Paul now changes to the practical observation of how to deal with people who are behaving poorly. There was some bad behavior in the church. We learn from Paul's writing to Timothy that behavior is determined by belief, that doctrine determines deeds, that if there's bad behavior going on in the life of somebody, it is relevatory of what is actually going on in their heart. And so there was bad behavior going on in the church, and so Paul addresses that here. Some, maybe in the church of Thessalonica, believed erroneously that Jesus had already come back. That, 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 that they were in a time of the day of the Lord and therefore there wasn't anything they could do about it. Some maybe erroneously believed that because Jesus was coming back so soon, they should just blow off everything else. They shouldn't worry about their finances. They shouldn't worry about working. They shouldn't worry about taking care of their bodies or taking care of their homes because after all, Jesus is coming back and going to take us out of here. So what difference does it make what's going on here? This morning... I've divided this into three ideas. Let's consider the problem, the importance, and the solution. First, the problem. Some walked disorderly. Some walked disorderly. Perhaps a very literal translation of disorderly would be out of rank. It's it's a military term. Here we have soldiers, and the soldiers are taught to work at a, to, to walk at a certain cadence. They're, they're taught to walk in a certain place. They're taught to walk... Um, with everybody else, and they're supposed to look the same. And if they're out of rank, if they're not walking as they're supposed to walk, they are walking disorderly. Notice Paul had given them an example. In verses 7 and 9, he talks about, I showed you this. I I had you, you were supposed to follow us. And and, and that you should look at us and pay attention to what we did. And, and, And Paul says, this is what I did there when I was there. I would, I would work as a tent maker. I would work all day long so that I could teach the gospel, so I could preach. I wasn't chargeable to anyone there in that church, but rather I labored with my hands so that I would have opportunity to feed myself and preach the gospel to you. This is, this is what I did. This is how I behaved. And so he says they're supposed to follow Paul. Notes the problem is some would not work. Some would not work. This is how they were disorderly. They were a a burden to other people. 
I think there's a great principle here for our government. There's a great principle here for our churches. There's a great principle here for our counties and our countries. If any will not work, now note it doesn't say if they cannot work. Babies should not be expected to work to feed themselves. Okay? The ill, those who are infirmed, those who cannot work, should not be expected to take care of themselves. There are some that, um, and maybe in a particular culture, maybe the economy, or maybe in a particular culture there is our circumstances against some people, and they are not allowed to work. But if there's people who could work, and they will not work, he calls that disorderly behavior. Another lesson from history, in the first permanent settlement of our country, everybody has heard about Jamestown. Jamestown, Virginia was first settled by soldiers of fortune, sons of the elitist. They came to America thinking that they were going to be famous and wealthy. And when they got to the shores of Virginia, what they found was a muddy riverbank and malaria. And Indians who wanted them to go home. Not at all what they expected. So as they tromped along in the, the, the muddy swamps along uh, the, the river, they soon um, were starving. They, they started running out of food. And, and was, as an organization, they expected someone else to do the work. Along came an old salt, a guy by the name of Captain John Smith, who had um, been a world traveler already. He was a, uh, a, we would call him a mercenary. He had hired himself out in various parts of the world. Now this Englishman came on this tour to Virginia and he saw the crisis of the organization and he made it the rule as he took charge of that situation. The rule was if you don't work, you don't eat. Simple as that. Everybody has a job and if you don't do your job that's part of this community, you're not going to benefit from what the community has. You don't get to eat. When should you teach a child that? May I suggest that that starts before they go to school? You say, wait a minute, you, you expect them to go out and get a job? I didn't say that. But if they don't pick up their toys, if they don't obey, if they don't do the things that are required of them, there should be consequences. I'm not saying starve the kid, as you can see from me and my family. We didn't do that. However, there is a precedent here. If you're going to be part of this family, you are going to work. You, you are going to do your jobs. You're going to take care of your responsibility as they're laid out for you. I don't think John Smith, from what I know of his history, was a godly man. But let me tell you, there's a godly ethic that he got. And I believe that it was found first in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. Some, here was the problem, some would not work. Notice, secondly, that some meddled in business not their own. I love that English word, busybody. In case you're wondering, the Greek word that is translated busybody is a Greek compound word that means busybody. <laughs> it's, there are people that, because they don't have enough work of their own, they think they have to help everybody else or work in everybody else's busybody business. Busybodies are people who don't have a marriage that's worth 
a whole lot, but they want to fix yours. Or their children are the terror of the world, but they want to tell you how to raise yours. Or maybe they want to tell you how you should be working or how you should be taking care of your home. Or, but, but they're busybodies. They're, they're, they're obsessed with somebody else. They want to fix you. They want to give you advice you don't want. And I've noticed about busybodies that when you don't take their advice, they're usually offended. Because, you know, don't you think? No, I don't think like you think. And therefore, I don't necessarily have to do what you want me to do. They're busybodies. Notice the direction concerning them. That they should eat their own bread. They should take care of their own table. You can't take care of someone else until you've learned to take care of yourself. I remember the, uh, back when I was in uh, junior high school, I took junior high life-saving. They don't call it that anymore, but it was a Red Cross class that I took at the local public school. And I, I remember one thing from the summer that I took junior, life save, junior high life-saving, and that was this. If you want to save someone who thinks they're drowning, whatever you do, don't let them climb on top of you. Because then what happens is two people drown. No, you're, you're better off them drowning than them than, than killing both of you. No, you, you, have to, you, you can't do that. Well, the, the, you have to take care of yourself first. If you would help someone else, the problem in the text. Some walked disorderly. Some would not work. Some meddled in business that was not their own. Second, the, the importance Notice how strong Paul feels about this. You may, you may listen to this sermon today and say, Pastor, <laughs> you know, this sounds more like politics than it does church. You're talking about uh, people working or people not working. Um, what's this got to do with what? Note the importance Paul puts on this. I already noted to you the word, that, the word command. Paul commands the church concerning this disorderly behavior. Only 12 times does Paul use this Greek word that's translated here, command, in all the New Testament. Four times are in this text, and three are specifically to this idea of commanding people concerning those who would not work. This is important. Maybe, maybe you're of the idea that every time Pastor Leeds goes to the pulpit, he should talk about Jesus and sin and people getting saved and going to heaven, and that's it, and that he shouldn't be a busybody and meddle in other things. Well, Paul didn't see it that way. Paul believed that this was important, so he commanded this. And then notice this, that Paul, through Jesus, coaches us concerning the disorderly. Not only did he command us, but, but he look in verse 12. For Now, those who are such, we command and exhort. That's that word paraclete. That's, that's that Holy Spirit word that Jesus uses in John 14. Someone who comes along someone else. It, it, the picture I would like you to see this morning is, is here's a guy running a race and, and the coach is running alongside of him. I always like it when you watch the Olympics. And, and sometimes there's those real long races and the, the guy is running lap after lap. And as he get, gets close to the end, sometimes you'll see a teammate or a coach that will join him at a point in the circle and will run with him for a while. And the whole time he's running with him, the guy that's running, he's just looking forward. <sighs> you know, he's just, he's all, he's all out. 
But there's this guy running alongside of him. Maybe it's a teammate. Maybe it's a coach. And he's yelling at him. At his, what's he doing? He's telling him, hey, you're in second place. You're only 10 seconds behind the guy that's in first place. You've only got one more lap to go. If you've got it in you, buddy, now's the time to put it in place. Right? That's, that, that's the word here. Jesus is our coach. Paul says, I command and exhort you as a paraclete, someone that would come alongside of you through our Lord Jesus Christ, that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. This is an important enough issue that our coach, our paraclete, our encourager, that we would take care of our own business and take care of our own property and that we would work so that we could benefit other people This is such an important issue that Jesus comes alongside of us. So there was a problem. There were people that were disorderly. It was important enough that Paul commands it, and Jesus is our coach, our exhorter. So what's the solution? What is the church, Trinity Baptist Church, supposed to do on this issue? Number one, note the disorderly, he says. Verse 14, if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person. Mark them. Now, I thought maybe we would give um, Roger and Terry some permanent markers. And when they see someone coming to church that doesn't work, that they should just take the permanent marker and put a big X on their forehead. No, we're not going to do that. You don't have to, you know, show your last pay stub when you walk in to prove that you're working. But that is the idea. That that these people ought to be shown for who they are. That that people who would pretend to be in charge, that people who are busybodies and will not work, we ought not pretend that they're behaving righteously as they meddle with other people's business. Then notice it gets harsher. He says in verse 14, not only do you mark that person... But do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. He says, don't hang around with them. Withdraw from them. Avoid them. Don't associate with them. They're they're troublemakers. Some, Some translations say have nothing to do with them. This is radical. This is the same treatment that Paul says that the church should use concerning adulterers in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It's the same treatment that Paul suggests we use with divisive people, people who are trying to divide up the church in the book of Titus. There's only three places in the Bible where God, or in the New Testament, where, where Paul tells us there are certain people to avoid. Adulterers, people who are trying to stir up trouble in the church, and people who will not work but insist on meddling in other people's business. He doesn't say to avoid the thieves. Well, you know, I suppose if they're busybodies and they're not taking care of their own business. That way. But the, the point I'm trying to make is this is, big, this is a big deal. I find that sometimes I just don't have time to read their uh, emails, you know, when someone tries to, to fix me. Or it's, it's, it's always amazing to me that I, I will get, I, I bet you about, probably about once a year, I'll, I'll get a, a letter. And it will never have a return address. And, and it will be signed by something like, you know, a faithful brother. And, 
And it will be like from, you know, I don't know, Bismarck, North Dakota. And somebody got a hold of the address of our church, and, and he has sent out, he, she, whoever they are. They, and and they'll, they'll have whole paragraphs in all caps, you know. And, and, and they'll have, you know, pictures and news articles. And sometimes they'll, you know, it, it'll sometimes come. What's really amusing is when there's so many pages that it weighs more than the postage and it comes postage due. And uh, that's always amusing when I have to pay for such a thing if I actually want to read it. But, but uh, I bet about once a year I get from a professional Christian busy, Christian? I get for someone who thinks he's a pseudo-spiritual guy, who wants to fix me and all the other churches in America so that we would all believe like they do about some strange, you know. Sometimes it's an important thing. Sometimes it's something that we teach and preach here at Trinity Baptist Church. But the irony that they think that they need to fix everybody else. I bet you in most of those cases, if we were to go find out who it is, it's probably somebody who doesn't even go to church in a local church because he can't get along with anybody in his own local community. And so he's got to fix everybody. Anyway, I'm going down way too far. Um, The solution, note that person. Don't keep company with that person. Avoid them. You say, what if I like the person? What if I'm related to the person? That gets difficult. But in the church, he says, avoid them. He says that we should mark them and note them and avoid them. And then notice the third part of the solution. Keep on doing good. Just just keep on doing good. Now for the grammarians among us, you heard that and you probably corrected me even as I said it and said keep doing well. No, this is not a misused adjective being used as an adverb, but rather it is a noun. Keep doing righteousness. Keep doing those things that are of great value. Keep doing those things which are holy and true. Don't get weary in doing God's work. In keeping on, keeping on. God desires a long, consistent obedience from all of us. This is not a one and done. Or you know what? I tried that once. It didn't work. The gospel race is a marathon. Good parenting is exhausting. Good parenting will wear you out to the point that you'll pull out your hair and scream sometimes. Good marriage is hard work. Now, Charlie and Brittany don't think so, but they haven't been married long enough yet. But a good marriage is hard work. I can guarantee you Brittany will find that out. Teaching is exhausting. Students, whether they be in this auditorium or in a classroom, suck every ounce of energy out of every cell in your body. Isn't that right, Beth? Patience wears me out. I get impatient trying to be patient. Death is a losing battle. We war against it and it goes on and on. Temptation. My lust that is in me is so intimate and it never goes away. Never. If you ask me, verse 13 is proof that I'm okay. Because Paul says, but as for you, brethren, don't get tired of doing that which is right. He's implying there that it is tiring doing right. But it is exhausting sometimes. 
And then verse 16, the benediction. I know this is three sermons. Here's the last one. Now may the Lord of peace himself. There he does it again, Charlie. Now the Lord of peace himself. He didn't need that word in there. He's just emphasizing it for us. May the Lord in peace himself give you peace always in every way. Notice the superlatives there. Always, in every way, all the time, every subject. As a child of the 60s and then a teenager in the 70s, my culture was obsessed with peace. I remember youth group activities where the big kids were arguing about the importance of peace. They sewed broken crosses on their blue jeans. They went around and every time there was a photograph taken of them, they were flashing the victory sign. Their culture's goal was to medicate themselves into a, 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 an aura where they wouldn't even remember that there was conflict. They hated the establishment. They, they, their, their theme song was Let It Be, to live and let live. They attacked anything that would stand for anything. They thought the answer to life's conflict was an absence of war. But you know, the answers to life's conflicts are not found outside of us. The answers to life's conflicts are found in our soul. It is my soul that is a war field. It is my soul that has conflict. The answer to this is not found in pills or in politics, but in the Lord of peace. He says the master, may the Lord himself, that, that word is Adonai, a master, He's he's the boss of peace. Jesus himself is the commander. He is the boss of peace. He's in charge of peace. Therefore, there is no lasting peace in me or in my culture between us without Jesus. May the Lord of peace himself always, when you wake up in the morning, when you go to bed at night, when you're young, when you're old, when things are going well, when things are not going well, always in everything, may the Lord himself give you peace. All right, so where did the Holy Spirit talk to you today? Was it about your prayer life and praying for this church or a missionary? Was it about your need to work or your attitude concerning work or maybe your attitude towards someone who doesn't work? Was it you that needed that part how about your soul is there peace (laughs) the answer is not in the 70s the answer is not in let it be the answer is in you that you would have peace let the peace of God which passes all understanding keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus and that is only found in your relationship with Jesus Christ Would you bow your head and close your eyes? I'd ask you as an invitation to look inside. Question one, who should you be praying for? Question two, are you a busybody? Are you messing with other people's business instead of taking care of your own? Are you working as you ought? If you're a student, what is your job? It's to work be a good student. What if you're retired? What is your job? Maybe it's to take care of yourself, be a blessing to someone else, to be a helper. 
has God got for you from this sermon? Do you have peace in your soul? Are you angry? If you're looking for peace, you won't find it in the politics. <laughs> That's a warfare field. You're going to only find it in Jesus. The Jesus who died for your sins. The Jesus who wants to make you whole. The Jesus who wants to bring you healing in your life. May the Lord of peace himself always and everything reign in your heart in peace. How should you respond to the preaching today? What would God have you to do?